All right, I heard a few of you singing that. <laughs> Save it, we'll need it for the end of the sermon today. Well, hey, my name is Alex Dennis. I get to be one of the pastors here at Asante Church, and our other pastor is out this morning, and uh, he's definitely the regulator around here. He's more of the, uh, the structured type. So really, what do you guys want to do today, you know? <laughs> we can have all the fun. Jacob's not going to say no. Laura, don't tell him I'm saying this right now. I hope he doesn't listen back to this. Well, hey, today we are diving into Psalm 41, and when I hear the Beatles sing Let It Be, I think it's a perfect match for this psalm. Uh, the Beatles, um, really small band out of Liverpool, um, really kind of indie pop rock. A lot of people just never heard of them, but this is actually a really good song, uh, Let It Be. If you haven't heard it, I would suggest you just probably go listen to it after today's message. It was written and sung by Paul McCartney. And this iconic track was the Beatles' last single on their last album before Paul McCartney left the band. He explained the meaning behind the song. He said when he was 14 years old, his mother died. And at 16 years old, he had this dream where things were going kind of not well in his life. And his mother came to him in a dream and comforted him. So we read those lyrics when I find myself in times of trouble. Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom, let it be. And in my hour of darkness, she is standing right in front of me speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Whisper words of wisdom, let it be. When Paul McCartney was asked about that lyric, Mother, Ma Mother Mary comes to me, he uh, very uh, Paul McCartney, very Beatles-esque, mysteriously answered, um, well, it's kind of up for interpretation, really. Um, I don't really want to interpret it for our fans, so I'll keep it kind of general and vague. And so his mom's name was actually Mary. Don't let him fool you. He's, he's a cool guy, but he's not that cool, okay? And... When it comes to Mother Mary for us, we know that Mother Mary is the, the mother of Jesus, the virgin that gave birth to our King Jesus. And it's not Mother Mary that comforts us anyways. It is King Jesus. And did God use her in a very special way? Absolutely. But she is not the object of our hearts. She is not the object of our worship. That is our King Jesus. And so I'm just going to remix this Asante Church version. When I find myself in times of trouble... My King Jesus comforts me, speaking words of wisdom. Let it be. Let it be. Let it be. Let it be. We're going to dive into the sermon now. <laughs> Psalm 41, titled, O Lord, Be Gracious to Me. This is the last psalm and the first book of the five books of Psalms written by David to the choir master. Um, this is a song of lament. We have learned in this series there are psalms of praise. God, this is what's going on in the world. This is what you have done. I praise you for it. There are psalms of lament, which are, God, this is what's going on in the world. It really stinks. What are you going to do about it? And so this is a psalm of lament asking God, hey, this is what's going on in the world. What are you going to do about it? But it's structured in a very weird way, okay? Um, I like food. I especially like highly processed, refined sugar snack food. Uh, so I'm going to explain this like an Oreo, okay? So you have an Oreo. You have the cookie part, worthless. You have the cream, that's why you buy it. And then you have the cookie part, okay? They have... Oreo, the thin Oreos, that's just the thought of an Oreo. They have the diet Oreos, which are just normal size. They have 
double stuff, and that's the size that you should buy. And then they have like mega stuff, which is just basically a whole tub of that highly addictive cream. Uh, I've had to stay away from that. I know I don't have much discipline when it comes to Oreos. So back to Psalm 41. The way this works is usually uh, a psalm of lament is just lamenting all the way through, but it's a basically it's a it's a negativity sandwich, what we have here today. So you have the bad parts of the Oreo. Just reverse the Oreo, okay? The cream is on the outside. The bad, nasty chocolate cookie that you just put up with so you can have that delicious experience is in the middle. So it is the first three verses, praiseworthy. God, this is what's going on. This is who you are. I praise you. And then it is basically 10 verses of, well, this is all pretty messed up, or seven verses. And then the last three verses, it sandwiches it off, and we get back to praising God. And this is what David says in the first point that we take out today. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. The Lord projects him, or protects him. The Lord doesn't project him. That would be fun. But the Lord protects him and keeps him alive. He is called blessed in the land. You do not give him up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains him on his sickbed. In his illness, you restore him to full health. The very first point that we take out of these first three verses today, and it is filled with just, we can find it all in these first three verses, is help the helpless. Help the helpless. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. So who are the poor? The poor are the weak. Okay, so what does it mean for someone to be weak? It means that they can be weak in a few different areas, but two especially, weak in influence. When we think of poor people, I think of, you know, we just think of the beggar on the side of the road. We think of homeless Joe over here at 303 and 60, the veteran highway, the most creative sign I've ever seen. I bet he's just making bank off of that thing. Uh, we tend to just think of poor people, but this is people that are poor in influence. This is the unborn child. This is children. This is the human that's being trafficked. This is the slave. This is the powerless. But it's not just those that are weak in influence. It's also those that are weak in possession. It is the homeless. It is the poor. It is the needy. It is those without. And so we are called to take care of them, not just by King David here, but King Jesus later on in the Gospels. So how do we take care of them? It says that we are to consider them. And to consider them doesn't mean that they're just a passing thought in our mind, but we are to be considerate of them. This requires some things for us. And I think in middle-class suburbia, this can be really difficult for us. This means that we're called to get rid of our apathy towards the poor, towards the weak, towards those who can't stand up for themselves. For whatever reason, we may hold against them. For whatever reason, we may not hold against them. Maybe it's just not our problem, so we don't want it to be anywhere near our lives. To consider them means to put yourself in their shoes. It means to realize that you yourself are only a few bad days, a few bad decisions away from being the exact same situation that they're in. God blessed you. God blessed me. We aren't in that situation right now. That doesn't mean that we won't be. doesn't mean that we haven't been. It means to figure out a way to help them get out of the spot that they're in. Part of considering the poor, the weak in influence and in possession is that we are called to protect them. 
We're called to protect them physically. We are called to protect the unborn child. We are called to protect life. We are called to protect life, whether it's in the womb or outside the womb, without roof or a meal on the table. We are called to protect them financially. This doesn't just mean money, but this certainly means money as well. You have resources. I have resources. We have resources in abundance. We can take care of one person. We can take care of a few people. If we band together as a church, we can take care of a lot of people. But God has blessed us with things that he has intended us to bless other people with. Who are we to hold it closed-fisted and not give it to them? So how do we do this? How do we do this practically? I think practically, we serve them. Whether it's counseling people standing outside of an abortion clinic, whether it's serving a meal in a soup kitchen, whether it's packing a meal at St. Mary's down the road, which our church and especially our senior adult ministry, Oasis, shout out, what's up? What's up? Come on. I know there's more of you than that. And y'all are a lot more boisterous than that too. You take care of our poor. You take care of the people that can't take care of themselves. This also means that we provide. We provide food. We provide clothing. We provide money. And this is something that we can kind of get caught up in as believers. I think uh, this is a question that a lot of people ask that are believers across many churches. How can I responsibly take care of somebody who is in need? What if I give $5 to this guy who is begging for money and he just turns around and he goes and buys a six pack with it and he's an alcoholic and that's actually why he's on the street? What if he just turns around and he buys crack? What if he turns around and I don't know. Here's what I do know. I do know that we are called to be good stewards of the resources that God has given to us. And that means living open-handed. We are called to be obedient and giving to them, and they are going to be held accountable for what they do with the money as soon as it leaves our hand and goes into theirs. Now, I will say, for me, for my family, um, I don't leave the house much. I love that we have a fries now. I try not to leave the neighborhood ever. Uh, <laughs> I like it here. I think it's great. I like that you live here too, okay? And if you ever want to meet, I'll meet you at Fry's. We've got great tables up there, and there's a Starbucks close by. But I know that I don't come across very many poor people uh, on a normal basis. I think the most, um, the poorest people in our community are poor in relationship. And as a church, we set out to right that wrong. We set out to meet that need so that then we can meet the need of the gospel in their lives. But Seriously, a homeless veteran at 303 and 60 is one of the only homeless people that I ever see. And so I don't carry cash around. Um, I don't think anybody does anymore. There's a, a chain shortage or something going on. Um, they're not printing dollars. I don't know. Uh, I also don't carry bars of gold around. I can't oh, chip them off some. Uh, and I can't Venmo him because I don't know if he has a phone. He probably does, though. He probably does have a Venmo. He needs to get that QR code up on that sign. Maybe that's how I can help him. I'm just dreaming about marketing for homeless people right now. We'll, we'll get back in here. But if that's the only guy that I ever see that is out of house and home, uh, who doesn't have a meal, there is a, an organization that um, me and my wife found called Phoenix Rescue Mission. Before Asante Church was ever a church, we went to a church called the Church of Arrowhead, TCAA, in Glendale, uh, about 45 minutes away. And that church partnered with Phoenix Rescue Mission. Now, Phoenix Rescue Mission 
Phoenix Rescue Mission. I'm going to stop saying it, all right? That's a lot of words and a lot of syllables really fast, okay? Um, man, uh, they bring poor people in. They feed them. They house them. If they are addicted, they get them cleaned up, and they get them in a job and not back out on the streets. But while they do that, they teach them just hygiene. They teach them relationships, but they teach them the gospel. They share Jesus with them. And this organization sees so many salvations and so many baptisms every single year. And we've had a family that's a part of this church that uh, the husband is a, is a manager at that organization. And uh, so what I'm saying is for me and my family, I know I'm not going to see a bunch of homeless people. I'm not driving into downtown Phoenix every day. What we do what we are able to do is donate money to that organization who I know they will not only be taken care of, but they will also hear the gospel. So when it comes to practically serving all of these weak people that need protection and need us to take a stand physically and spiritually on their behalf, there are options out there. If we're making excuses, that's on us. We should be living generously on their behalf because our, generous, our generosity, our generosity, talk about syllables, okay, our generosity may see them come into right relationship with our King Jesus. Don't make excuses. We've got the internet. You Google everything all the time. You can find a Christian organization in one of these areas, and you can pour into them so that they can then pour into other people the way that we are not able to here in our sweet bubble right off of Highway 60 and the 303. So why do we do this? We do this because when we do, God then takes care of us. Three ways he does it. We see that God delivers us here in verses one through three. He removes us from the situation that we're in. Not only does he deliver us, but he protects us. He shields us from the threat that is surrounding us. He is shielding David from the threat that is surrounding him. And then not only that, but God sustains us. And especially when we are sick, God will sustain us. He will see us through what we can't see the end of in our life. And so before we move on to the next point, when we generously take care of others, God generously takes care of us. Realize this isn't just King David that was taking care of the poor. This is King Jesus saying, do the same. We will all be held accountable to this thing But when it comes down to it. When it really comes down to it, we are just as helpless as they are. Yeah, you may have a nicer house. You may have more meals on the table, but spiritually, we are just as unrighteous. We are just as wicked. We are just as corrupt. And Jesus so generously took care of us. Let's take care of others. Point two, we see that God's grace brings forgiveness and it brings healing. There are so many big Christianity questions within this sermon today. How do we handle the poor? How does sin relate to forgiveness and illness? And we see that in verse four. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. So God's grace brings forgiveness and healing. We don't know what David is sick with, but we know he's down with the sickness. Any dads in here picking up on that? Okay, and some not dads. That's good. All right, that's a disturbed reference. I wouldn't expect church people to know that one. That's good. You guys love Jesus. All right. We see that David is correlating his sin with his illness, what he is going through, whatever ailments 
are taking place in his body. And so what is the cure that David is seeking out? He is seeking out the cure of forgiveness. If I receive your forgiveness, Lord, then the sin that is bringing on this illness in my life will be removed from me. And here in 2023, we tend to think of illness as something that is solely physical. It's something that is just germs from one person to another. But this shows us that there is a spiritual side to illness. And it's not just here in the Old Testament. We see this in three examples in the New Testament. And the first one deals with our hearts. This is New Testament. This is New Covenant believers, this is you and me. This deals with our hearts when it comes to communion. We covered this a few weeks back. This is important to cover as many times as we can. But in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight through 30, Paul writes, let a person examine his heart. That means take inventory of all the sin in your life. Then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. First, examine your heart. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. As Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, he is noticing that this church is sick, that this church has illness, and it is because they are going about communion without ever dealing with the sin in their own hearts. They thought they were honoring God by taking communion, but what they see is because they're approaching communion with unforgiveness towards other people, that they're actually dishonoring God in their hearts completely, dishonoring others in the body of Christ. You see, the way that this is wrong, the reason that this is wrong is because communion is remembering the sacrifice of Jesus in which we were forgiven by his work on the cross. And so if we receive forgiveness, but we withhold it from other people, then we are being absolutely hypocritical. We're called to receive forgiveness. We're called to extend forgiveness. And when we don't and we take communion anyway, we drink judgment on ourselves. There's a reason that we say, if you are a believer, join us today as we do communion together. It's because if you're not a believer, then you've not received that forgiveness. And so it doesn't make sense for you to take communion. But there's also another standpoint as a believer, if you have unforgiveness on your heart, don't take communion. Because if you take communion and there's unforgiveness on your heart, you are drinking judgment, eating judgment, bringing it upon yourself. You are bringing sickness, you are bringing illness into your life. Don't do it. Let that person go as you have been let go. You're not just doing them a favor, you're giving yourself the biggest gift you could ever give yourself. The second example that we see is that it deals with repentance and healing. We see this in James chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So, as a church member, as a Jesus follower, we can get sick due to sin. If that is the case, and this sickness, this illness is not leaving you, call me up. Call Jacob up. Call a pastor, an elder in the church up. We want to pray for you. I'll bring my oil over. We'll anoint you with a little Crisco. You know what I'm saying? It's going to be so awkward. You're going to tell me your sins, and I'll pray that you be forgiven. I'll lead you in an apology to the Lord. I'll lead you in what you should say to the person that you sinned against. But we'll pray for healing because of the 
unforgiveness that is in your heart because of the sin that is in your life. If we allow sin to remain inside of our bodies, it is like an acid. An acid will always ultimately eat the container that it is in. So ask for forgiveness for yourself. Forgive others. Be healed from it. Third example is we see that illness and sin, they go hand in hand sometimes, but they don't always go hand in hand. And this is from Jesus. We see that some illness is actually meant for God's glory. John 9, verses 2 through 3, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, You knuckleheads, <laughs> it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus fills the disciples in. This man's not blind because of sin in his life. This man is blind because of the purposes of God. And God is about to show up and show off in this man's life, in the life of Jesus, in the ministry of Jesus, in a way that you can never even imagine. As a pastor, I have been growing as this church gets older and older. Uh, we've only been having services for about two and a half years now. We've only been a church uh, for about four, meeting in my house, boom, COVID, meeting on Zoom, uh, boom, more COVID, uh, meeting in a 55 and up church once a month, and then finally, eventually making our way into this building, holding worship in here just like this. I've seen illness in this church. I've seen illness that's due to sin. I've seen illness in this church that's due to a lack of forgiveness. But I think the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around as a pastor that is still trying to figure this thing out is how God could allow illness for somebody who is not harboring unforgiveness, who is not harboring sin in their lives. And then I come across this and it makes all the sense in the world. That maybe this person's illness, maybe this person's situation, that doesn't seem fair to me, Maybe God actually has something bigger in mind. Maybe God's actually bigger than what I can comprehend in here. Maybe God doesn't have to be okay with me being okay with it. Because God's going to use it. And just as God used this blind man, I've seen him use people in this church that have come under illness that has not left them. And I've seen God do incredible things. I've seen the gospel being shared in situations that otherwise would not have and it's a powerful thing. So we're not always okay with it, but we need to get okay with it. We need to believe that God has a plan. We need to trust in his will. We need to realize that he's bigger than we are. We need to get behind what he's doing. In the end, this ultimately comes down to this, that God can use illness for discipline. God can use illness for his glory, but both are used to get our attention and to shift our focus from ourselves to him. When we get sick, when others get sick, we tend to focus just on them. We tend to focus just on ourselves. God, this isn't fair. Why me? Woe is me. But God is up to something much more. And so if God is, there's illness present in your life, put the attention on who it needs to be on, and that's the Lord. Yes, you need to take care of yourself. Yes, you probably should go see a doctor. Yes, you should get that thing looked at. <laughs> but you should also ask God, what is this in my life for? 
Is there sin that I don't even know that I'm harboring against someone else or unforgiveness against somebody else that I haven't given to them? Is there sin I'm harboring in my life that's eating me alive? Or is this something that you're just going to use for your kingdom, for your glory? And in my weakness, you will be my strength. In your strength, I will be made so far beyond whole, it will be unreal. But we also see something else here. And this is so stinking cool. <laughs> I, love the, I love the word. I love when we see the gospel and stuff like this. And that's exactly what we see here is the gospel. You see David in this moment, he can go one of two paths. He can go the path of religion or he can go the path of relationship. And the path of religion that David could go would say, heal me. Heal me, God. I am sick. Heal me because I've taken care of the poor. I need your forgiveness. I need your healing. I need you to make things right in my life. I've got to lead this kingdom. I don't know if you remember what you called me to do that. Could you make this a little bit easier? Why? Because I am so good. Because of the good things that I have done. Heal me, God, because I've earned it. Now, he could have gone that way, but he didn't go that way. Instead, what he did was he went the route of relationship. He went the route of the gospel that he was the foreteller of. He says, heal me. Not because I'm good. Heal me because I've sinned. Heal me because I'm bad. It's not the healthy that need a hospital. It's the sick that need a hospital. Heal me because I can never earn your healing. I can never earn your forgiveness. Heal me, God, because I am fully reliant on you. And we see this echoed all the way in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8 in the New Testament. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. That's the sinful people. For, the, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one will dare to even die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Don't choose religion. Don't choose trying to make it to heaven on your staircase of good deeds that you've stacked up. It'll never be high enough. We can never earn this by our own account. But we rest and rely on Jesus fully, knowing our sin, dying for us, taking our place on the cross once again to take our sin and to give us his righteousness. And then we dive into 5 through 10. My enemies, save me in malice. When will he die? And his name perish. And when one comes to me, he utters empty words while his heart gathers iniquity. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say, a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. Point three is just watch your back, all right? That's what it should be. It didn't really come across well in the PowerPoint. So it is our closest friends can be our worst enemies. There have been times over the span of my short life that I have been hospitalized for different things, broken wrist, sickness, illness, whatever it was, uh, just working too hard sometimes. <laughs> but every single time I was in the hospital, it was those closest to me that came and comforted me. They'd bring me little gifts. They'd bring pizza because they'd know I didn't like hospital food all that much. It's better here in Arizona, though. Texas hospital food, it's like prison food, hospital food, okay? <laughs> I've never been to prison, but I hear it's bad. 
They comforted me. What happens to David? Man, they're bringing him bouquets of flowers that are dead, wilted, and rotted. They got flies swirling around him. And there is a note card in the middle of those flowers that said, I hope you kick the bucket. I hope you die today. I don't know if you'll ever get up out of this bed. Those are bad enemies. And we see in verses 5 through 7, David has bad enemies. And it lists four traits of bad enemies. Maybe you have bad enemies in your life. Maybe you don't know they're there. Maybe these four traits will help you point them out. Bad enemies talk bad about you behind your back. Bad enemies put on a facade in person. This is a nice way to say that they're kiss-ups. They're going to say really fancy, nice, positive words in front of you. But as soon as they turn their backs to you, they are going to slander you. And when they slander you, they will not only slander you in public as they did David, they will slander you in private as they did David. But right here, hey, how's it going? I brought you a casserole. I poisoned it, but I hope you get better. David has bad enemies. David has worse friends. We see that verses eight through nine. The traits of worse friends is that they will distance themselves with wild accusations. What are these wild accusations? Surely God has cursed this man. Surely God is against this man. Now, David is God's appointed king. Do we think God is going to be against his appointed king? The forerunner of the messianic Christ, the forerunner of the Messiah, the king that would come to free his people? No, absolutely not. Why would God be against David? They will say crazy things. They will say things like God has cursed you. And they will look at you like you are the cause of all of it. Secondly, they will betray you. And it is in this, in verse 9, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. It is in this that we see the story of Jesus and Judas. This is a foreshadowing of a betrayal that would come. Like great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, King David, so it would be for great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson, King Jesus. Maybe you remember the last night of Jesus' life. In the upper room, they have the Last Supper. Jesus starts to wash his disciples' feet. Peter says, no, not me, Lord. You won't wash my feet. Oh, you, you actually need to wash my I'll wash my whole body. Meanwhile, Judas is plotting in his head. When can I get out of here to betray this man? And shortly after, he slips out and he betrays Jesus. This is a foreshadowing. What does David pray? David prays that he would rise up, that he would defeat him. What do we see Jesus do? What do we do when our enemies oppose us? What do we do when our closest friends betray us? We'll take some examples from David's life. We'll take some examples from Jesus' life. The first thing we do is that while all these people are turning their backs on us, we turn to the God that never once turned his back on us. We submit ourselves to him. We submit our situation to him. This is a zooming in on the lens of our life saying, God, this is exactly every detail of what's happening in my life. I need you to take this because I can't handle it. But then we submit ourselves to his will. And this is a zooming out. This is panning out to get the full 
picture. What is really going on? What is the scale and the scope of this according to your ultimate story, God, according to your will? Okay, this seems really big when I'm right in the middle of it. But when I look at everything you're doing, everything that you're in control over all over the world, this seems so small. And then just like David did, we pray for victory. We pray for God's outcome over what we want. And then out of Jesus's life, we love and we serve them. We wash their feet. We continue to relate to them until the offense happens. You don't want to keep putting yourself back into an abusive situation. That's not wise. We're called to be wise as believers, but we are called to forgive. Not called to forget, but you are called to forgive. Jesus knew that Judas was about to betray him, and what did he do? He ate at the table. He still washed his feet. He continued to relate to him, and then it happens. We relate to people hoping that God can use our lives to bring them into salvation. But if we write them off right off the bat because we've been offended, because we've been hurt, then that removes that chance of that happening completely. It doesn't mean we become pushovers, though. Now, we don't fight back physically, but we fight back spiritually. We fight back in prayer. We pray for God's victory. And I think what's most important for all of us here when it comes to relationship with each other, when it comes to relationship against you and the person who you just can't stand in your life. A real alfalfa and Darla situation. If you will, little rascals with me for a second. Realize that person is not your enemy. Their sin is your enemy. What the enemy is doing in their lives and what he has conjured up in their minds, that is your enemy. You are not fighting against flesh and bone. You are fighting against a spiritual battle. So if that's actually your enemy, pray for them. Pray for your heart in dealing with them. Paul writes, Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Point four, we praise God for his victory and we close out with this. By this, I know that you delight in me, my enemy will not shout and triumph over me. This is the other side of that reverse Oreo. We're back to the cream filling, people. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Church, know this. This is good. God delights in you. Know that God delights in you. Know that the enemy will not triumph over you. Know that your God will uphold you but know why. It is not because of our integrity, but because of the integrity of Jesus. This is exactly why we need our King Jesus to save us. Because when God looks at us, he does not see us. He sees the sacrifice and the blood of his son. When he delights in us, he doesn't delight in the good deeds we could do ourselves. He delights in the Christ likeness that he sees through the work of the Holy Spirit and how much more we are becoming like Jesus every single day. We need Jesus because we need his victory. We need Jesus' victory over our sin. We need Jesus' victory over each situation that we find ourselves in. We need Jesus' victory over our enemy. We need Jesus' victory over how we handle our enemy. Here's good news. Jesus won. Sin's dead. Get this, this. This is cool. It even sounds cool. 
Death is dead. The enemy has been defeated. If you put your trust in Jesus to save you from the wrath of God for your sin, then you are saved from all of those things. You're no longer dead. You are alive. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are set free. You are no longer defeated. You are victorious. We need Jesus because his strength is enough and our strength is not. And when we are weak and we go about the things that God has called us to do and we don't have enough strength within us, our strength starts here, it ends here, we need this much strength to get to the end and the Holy Spirit makes this up in our lives, that's where God gets the glory. So weakness is the way. Because if we can do it in our own strength, then we get the glory and it's not about us. That's our old lives. This is about Jesus. We need him. Let's give him the glory when he comes through for us. And in all of this, we praise him. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. This is called a doxology. This is the book end. This is Psalm 41, the end of the first book of Psalms. And it ends the same way that it started off with a doxology. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. What is he saying here? It's, it's point five. It's actually up there. Let it be. Let it be. Let it be. Let it be. Whisper words of wisdom. Let it be. Dear God, you are enough. That's what we're saying here. Dear God, you are in control. Dear God, you have me in your hands. Dear God, you have won my battle. Dear God, you are bigger than what I'm facing. Dear God, you are blessed. Dear God, you are forever. So, let it be. There's going to be times in your life where you need that comforting word. It's not just Paul McCartney having a trippy dream. Who knows what he was taking about his mom. There's going to be times where you need comfort. And it's not just going to be a ghost in a dream. It's going to be our King Jesus, who is alive, who is living, who is right there beside you in all the mess that you will find yourself in. So when you find yourself in times of trouble, our King Jesus comforts me, comforts you. Let's bring words of wisdom. Let it be.